2: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak and I'll be your host. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alan Taylor about his book, Thomas Jefferson's Education, published by W. W. Norton & Company in 2019. Dr. Taylor is Professor of History and the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Chair at the University of Virginia. Thomas Jefferson's education tells the story of how Jefferson's vision for educating the next generations of Americans came to be. Taking readers through Virginia's, at times struggling, to put it lightly, educational infrastructure, Dr. Taylor shows how Jefferson's experience with education was both shaped by and contributed to his own vision of what a university should look like. Culminating in what is today the University of Virginia, Jefferson's goals were, as out, as Dr. Taylor points out, both achieved and left by the wayside in a complicated development of a university and an educational system. Dr. Taylor, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I guess to get things started, could you tell our listeners how you came to this project?
1: Well, I came to it because I just started a job uh, here at the University of Virginia. And the uh, university was coming up on its bicentennial. And I was being asked to speak about the origins of the university, and I thought that I ought to know more about them. And so I, I started doing research, and it led to this book.
2: And so to kind of get our listeners you know, situated in what this looks like, can you tell us how the American Revolution, which is where you kind of start off, influenced you know virginian society and how this uh affected education
1: well the the revolution created a republic and in a republic citizens have much greater responsibility than subjects do in a monarchy so the leaders of the american revolution thought that they had to upgrade the quality of education uh, for the electorate and, uh, and so this is something that Jefferson took very seriously, and, and during the war of the American Revolution, he first proposed a comprehensive system for public education in Virginia.
2: And, you know, I, I think for a lot of people who are, you know, less familiar with this history, you know, the idea of why, you know, a citizenry as opposed to, you know, subjects in a in a you know empire and a british empire would need better of education might seem you know somewhat weird but you know one of the things that you point out and that you know historians have seen in uh the past is that you know America is somewhat different from England at this time. You know, there's much higher rates of literacy, there's much more engagement in politics, and as you point out, the Revolution sort of changes this even more and makes it more of, as you were just saying, you know, more imperative that these people are educated even better than they were.
1: Well, in in a republic, the citizens are the sovereign rather than some royal family. And uh, as the sovereign, they choose who will administer their government. In a a monarchy, the understanding was that monarchs and aristocrats could rule through ceremony, show, military force, and and they benefited from having an ignorant public. But the leaders of the American Revolution thought that if they were to keep a republic, they had to have a reasonably well-informed citizenry that would make uh, well informed decisions in electing their leaders.
2: Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of people who are even familiar with the American Revolution might not have seen before in a history book or in the histories that they've read of just how important the American Revolution was just to, you know, kind of the modern sense of an education.
1: Uh, yeah, before I took on this book, I had not uh, thought... Very much about um, the nature of education in early America. I think that the history of education has largely been a very specialized subfield. But the more I got into it, the more I realized how important education was to entire generations of American leaders. And that it is not something that's some sort of separate area of American life, but it was woven throughout the lives of people, particularly living in Virginia, at the end of the eighteenth century and early nineteenth century.
2: And in terms of, you know, the education that Virginians are getting at are are getting at this time uh, you begin kind of looking at William and Mary, which is, you know, the colonies and the state's oldest institution. And, you know, it's not a pretty sight to see, as you point out. And so what are some of the adversities that the school is facing at this time? And what does that tell us about Virginia society writ large?
1: Well, Virginia society is one that, uh, in the 18th century and, and on into the 19th century, is a society that depended upon slavery. And um, particularly the people who are governing Virginia that come from the families that, that own a uh, significant number of enslaved people. This has an effect upon their personalities, upon their culture. They're being raised to command uh, other people who are as slaves. And their families then encourage a kind of behavior that's uh, very independent, very quickly, does not accept anybody else exercising authority over them. And so it's a challenge for anybody who tries to instruct them at a university when these privileged young men with a very quickly sense of honor become the student.
2: Yeah, and so how does that look like at William and Mary? You know, there's these really good examples that you show, and obviously we don't want to tell the listeners all everything because we want to make sure to turn to readers, but, you know, in terms of, like, disciplining people and everything, there's, you know, this complicated, you know, society that you see when it comes to, you know, what is someone's place, what are they allowed to do, and how this influences education. Well,
1: these young men, particularly men, a lot of, trouble for one another, uh, but they also made a lot of trouble in the town of Williamsburg, which is uh, which hosts the College of William and Mary. And so there are uh, recurrent battles in which the students are going into town and breaking windows and knocking down fences and exchanging insults. And then the college authorities try to discipline the young men. But the college has a, has a major problem, which is the revolution has wiped out much of the endowment for women & married and has eliminated many of its revenues. So that the college is far more dependent on tuition paid by the young men. And, it, and so anytime they would kick out one of these young men, they would lose a, a revenue stream. And they would also offend these powerful families. So the University, excuse me, the College of William and Mary hardly ever kicked out young men, and the young men know this, so they can basically do what they want with impunity.
2: Yeah, I mean, that seems like just a recipe for disaster. And as you show, it's something where, you know, not only is this the kind of reality on the ground, but the students themselves understand this um, to, you know, a fine degree and take advantage of the situation.
1: Well, William & Mary is one of just three institutions of higher education in Virginia after the Revolution. The other two are, are, are tiny. Uh, the other two are Hampton-Sydney and then uh, also Washington College. Uh, Washington College is now Washington and uh, But other than those two small schools, it's basically William and & Mary. And so the, the prestigious families of Virginia want to send their sons to William & Mary, but then they're also upset that it's such a chaotic place. And so growing numbers of Virginia parents decide to send their young men off to school at Princeton or Harvard or Yale in the north. But then they feel uneasy about that when tensions over slavery um, come to the fore, and it makes the Virginia parents worried that maybe their young men will learn the wrong things if they're going to Yankee school.
2: Yeah, and so, you know, in terms of that, you know, you have Virginians like Jefferson who are advocating for, you know, a better education. And one thing that you focus on with Jefferson is how his own personal life at Monticello, his estate, influences uh, his views on education. And so how do you see that happening? Well,
1: well, Jefferson is certainly very concerned about the education of his own grandchildren, which he uh, takes a very deep, interest in. And Monticello itself is something of an educational institution in that uh, particularly the the opening lobby is is something of a museum. It has a very didactic purpose and and, uh, displays cherished items, uh, particularly associated with Native Americans or with fossils. And then Monticello is also a school for enslaved people who are learning their trades. So all of the education in Virginia is not contained in schools. Uh, most people in Virginia, including enslaved people, but also for white people, uh, their learning is taking place in farms and plantations and artisan shops, and Monticello is one of those places.
2: Yeah, and the... the um image that we kind of are presented of Monticello, as you were just saying, you know, that you have this kind of, you know, grand presentation, you know, you have almost museum, it's kind of, it's very ornate, um, and you can kind of, you really kind of feel like you're in Monticello when you're reading the book, um, and kind of learning about what Jefferson kind of thinks about and how that's portrayed in his own home.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, Monticello is a labor of love for Jefferson, and um, it takes many years to build. He is constantly changing his mind about the design and and tearing things down and then rebuilding. And so it has a a relatively brief existence as, as a building that's complete in Jefferson's lifetime. And no sooner is he finished building it, then, then it starts to suffer from a want of repairs because Jefferson runs out of money in his last year. So many of the visitors commented on how it looks like it might have been once grand, but that it's starting to look pretty shabby.
2: Yeah, and I mean, kind of thinking about how much Jefferson is changing Monticello and kind of never happy with it to a certain extent is kind of indicative of, of his views on education as a whole as well. You know, he's never really happy with how education looks like in Virginia.
1: Yeah, he's very disappointed that the leaders of the state did not embrace all of his ideas about education. And he ends up. Uh, having to compromise with them, he had had in mind three elements of a comprehensive educational system. The the lowest and but the most uh, extensive would have been a system of grammar schools that would be open to all white children in Virginia. And then he thought there should be in each county an academy or a college that would provide the equivalent of an academy or uh, high school education, and then he wanted there to be one university. And uh, he found out that the, the state leaders would not um, adopt the taxes necessary to fund that sort of system. And so, during the 18 he compromises and opts to just push for one element of the plan, and that one element is the university which means that Virginia's educational system will begin at the top, and uh, he hopes it's going to then expand downward, but it turns out it will not expand downward before the Civil War.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
2: yeah I mean I think for people who are less familiar with Jefferson's sort of plan especially the one that involves educating the masses of uh, white children all white children no matter what their status is you know that's sort of just seems today to be well a given you educate all children but at the time that was a pretty radical idea
1: Yeah, there was no system of public education in Virginia. Indeed, In most states of the United States, there was no system of public education. The exception to the rule was normal. And and Jefferson admired uh, the public schools of New England, and he hoped that Virginia would opt for a similar system. But he finds that it's very difficult in Virginia, in large part because people are opposed to the taxes necessary. Uh, but it's also tough because Virginia's population is so much more dispersed than is the case in New England, and it's very difficult for a significant number of uh, boys or boys and girls to be living within a walking distance of a school, given how dispersed people are in the very rural landscape in which the property holdings are often quite substantial, which separates people from
2: one Yeah and then as you point out in the book you know that problem is even more compounded by the fact that there's such sort of uh, intense regionalism within Virginia throughout this entire uh, time period.
1: Yes, yeah, so the, the Virginia is really divided into three different zones. One is the tidewater which is the oldest part of Virginia and the lowest part in terms of altitude and then You have the Piedmont, uh, which had become the power center for the state during the American Revolution, and that included uh, the capital of Richmond, and it also includes Albemarle County, which is where Jefferson lives and where the university will be founded. And then further west, and at a higher altitude, you will get western Virginia. or Virginia in uh, the early republic, also included what is now the state of west Virginia. Virginia is the largest state in the Union at this time. has the largest population. uh, But it's also divided between these different regions. And one of the chief issues dividing them is that uh, the slaveholders are concentrated in Tidewater and Piedmont. And they don't trust the West Virginians because they don't own um, as many slaves. And the fear is that if West Virginians are accorded more political power in the state, that they might do things like levy heavier taxes on slavery.
2: Yeah, I mean, that one thing in and of itself really illustrates just how, you know, central the institution of slavery is to the development of education in Virginia, just by the very fact that, you know, we could almost look back and sort of understand, okay, people are afraid of taxes, no one likes taxes, no one ever has liked taxes. Um, Yet, as you're pointing out, you know, slavery is a big question in how education doesn't get to be kind of lifted off the ground and sort of, you know, universalized, if you want to use that language.
1: Yes, slavery um, increases the inequality among white people. Uh, and that people who own other people are you know, immensely wealthier uh, than those who don't in the Virginia system. And those people who had superior wealth, in other words, the slaveholders didn't want to be taxed to fund the education of poor white Virginia.
2: Yeah, I mean, as someone who, you know, grew up at the um, edges of the Blue Ridge Mountains and everything like today, you know, it still feels like Virginia is a very segmented society. I mean, I know when I went off to college and I was interacting with people from northern Virginia and from eastern Virginia and the Piedmont and in the tidewater, it felt like they were worlds away even today. So it's it's almost hard to imagine what, what it would have been like back then, especially when, you know, modern day West Virginia was still in the mix.
1: Yeah, and it was very difficult to move around uh much of Virginia. I mean, you could move, move around the, the tidewater reasonably well because you moved by water. But the roads of Virginia were just wretched because they're also not uh, for the much money taxes to repair and build growth. And so uh people in the, in the interior of Virginia, and uh, West Virginia, uh, aren't in the habit of visiting the rest of the state and vice versa.
2: And one thing that you kind of already uh, spoke about briefly, but plays a prominent role in this story is how Jefferson and people like him, they do push for, you know, a state university, but they're also um, not very receptive to calls by some other people for a national university. You know, you might think of... George Washington, who thinks that the nation's capital should have a university. And Jefferson, as you point out, is not as receptive to that idea. And so why was that?
1: Well, the United States, before the Civil War, is a much more decentralized country than it would become after the Civil War. And there is a much weaker sense of American identity, particularly in the South. So Jefferson really didn't think of himself as an American. He thought of himself, first and foremost, as a Virginian. And that makes him pretty typical of Virginia's leaders. They they referred to Virginia as their country, and they spoke of a place like Massachusetts as another country. And they felt that the union of the states was really still a confederation uh, of different nations. And so Jefferson is suspicious of any effort to organize a national university. And this puts him at odds with George Washington who very much wants a national university located in Washington, D.C. Washington wanted to dissolve the uh, colloquial prejudices that separated the state. Uh, But Jefferson is somebody who's trying to defend Virginia's uh, high degree of autonomy and separate identity. And so he very much wants to see if he can establish a university for Virginia, and he discourages efforts to create a national university.
2: Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see on Washington's part, at least a sort of growth when it comes to that regionalism, because I know know from my own experience and looking at, you know, the history of the revolution and everything like that, and people might be familiar with it, that, you know, Washington, when, you know, he takes, for example, command of the uh, Continental Army, you know, is... Talking about you know, how negatively he thinks about New Englanders and everything like that, and by you know time he's becoming president of the United States, and then afterwards, you know, as you're pointing out, he really thinks that you do need to sort of forge this American identity that is not as tied to this sectionalism, whereas Jefferson is sort of steadfast in his commitment to that, as you're pointing out. Yeah,
1: what well, Washington is is arguably but- is. The first American, in that he comes to see what a problem these fake prejudices uh, have been for supporting the Continental Army. And so he becomes a very strong believer in a strong federal government and a strong uh, American identity. And many of his supporters were people who were officers in of the Continental Army and who had also suffered from the failure of state governments to support the army adequately. And they become then members of the Federalist Party, which is committed to this stronger federal government. But Jefferson was not in the Continental Army, and nor nor were uh, most of the other Virginians who support him in politics.
2: And one of the things that uh, I thought was really interesting was your discussion of once Jefferson is actually you know, starts to sort of structure his university, where he's actually, you know, thinking about how this is going to play out on the ground. You know, he makes these sort of rules and everything like that, and then they don't exactly work out, and, you know, he keeps trying new things. And so, When he finally is able to start, you know, having a university, when Virginia's university is finally beginning, what does it look like, especially compared to, as we were talking earlier, you know, William and Mary and the problems that plagued it?
1: Well, the the colleges of the 18th century tended to be one big building, such as the so-called Wren building at the College of William and Mary, or Nassau Hall. Uh, Princeton. In in this one big building you'd have students living and you'd have classrooms and in some cases you'd have faculty living there. For Jefferson, these big buildings uh, were breeding grounds for turbulence, for turmoil. And so he was very familiar with the troubles at William & Mary and he thought he had come up with an architectural design for the University of Virginia that would discourage that sort of turmoil. So it's a, it's a more decentralized design in which there are many smaller buildings which are connected, and they include pavilions where professors will live and what he calls dorms, which are um, quite low and, and dispersed. And uh, these would connect the pavilions. And then at the head of it all, there would be a rotunda, which would be this ceremonial and educational space for the university. And then on the wing, on the back wing, it would be what he called hotel, which provide food services for the students. So this is a design that in many ways reflects his political thinking because he also favored a decentralization of power within the American Union. But he would find that this design, which he thought would would achieve perfect harmony and uh, peace at the university, instead it actually increases uh, the turbulence, and this comes as a shock to him that the students are not amenable to his design and are not amenable to the rules that he would have for them.
2: Yeah, I know as a uh, as someone who did my undergraduate at Virginia Tech, which for people who are not from Virginia, um, that is UVA's arch rival. Um, they would always sort of tell us these horror stories of what UVA looked like in the past, which is, you know, pretty much as you're describing, you know, not some place that is, you know, kind of calm and everything like that. It's a place, as you were saying, of turbulence. Um, and as you were pointing out, something that did not live up at all to what Jefferson thought it would.
1: Yeah, I mean, it comes as a great shock to Jefferson to have, uh, the young men uh, drunk so often, uh, engaging in riots, uh, assaulting enslaved people who work at the university, assaulting one another. Uh, insulting professors, uh, going into the town of Charlottesville and making disturbances. It's um, everything that he had hoped the university would not be. Uh, And this is all coming in the last two years of his life when he's pretty elderly, quite frail, poor health, um, and he just very much wishes that things were going differently.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you know... Almost, it's it's kind of almost sad considering, you know, how his own experience with education, especially at William and Mary and around the area, had been. And, you know, he has this sort of grand vision. And then, as with most things when it comes to Jefferson, his grand vision doesn't usually pan out. Well,
1: Jefferson is very much a man of the Enlightenment, which is an intellectual movement, which... Thought that if you just came up with new rational rules and structures for people, that they would realize their potential and achieve a kind of harmony and by overriding uh, tradition. Well, Jefferson's university is very much designed along those lines, but he finds that the, the people that he expects to reform. Uh, very set in their ways and have a capacity to overwhelm those roles and defy the architectural vision that he has placed them
2: in. And speaking of, you know, people being set in their ways and, you know, how Virginians are acting at this time and w- what they think and, you know, what they believe, one of the things that you end the book with, which is, you know, a very interesting discussion of what jefferson's sort of ultimate goal ends up looking like after you know he's gone and one of the things that you illustrate is that it ends in a sort of contradiction where his students are educated in his mind to take a sort one route for one vision of america and they end up supporting as you say you know a strengthening of the institution of slavery and so how do you see this panning out
1: well, Jefferson had um, a contradiction in what he expected the university to do. He wanted to train um, the next generation of leaders for Virginia. And he succeeded in that. And he wants this next generation of leaders to do two contradictory things. On the one hand, he wants them to defend the state against pressures coming from the federal government and from the northern states to interfere in Virginians' way of life, which includes slavery. On the other hand, he wants Virginians themselves to win slavery. But he doesn't want outsiders to force them to do it on the timetable dictated by outsiders. Now, there's not really a danger of that, in Jefferson's time, but he and other Virginians are very sensitive to the possibility that it could happen and they overreact to um, Northern criticism of slavery. So Jefferson wants this new elite being trained at the University of Virginia to, on the one hand, be very effective defenders of Virginia's autonomy within the Union and to be reformers of Virginia. And the two reforms that Jefferson especially wants is that he wants the state to become more democratic for white men. He wants to expand the vote, which at that time was quite restricted by a property requirement. He wants to equalize representation, which at that time was skewed very much against West Virginia. And he also wants to uh, free the slaves gradually with a form of compensation to masters, and he wants to deport uh, all of the former slaves from either to the Caribbean or to West Africa. So it's a package of reforms uh, which are extremely ambitious. And it turns out that the great majority of white Virginians don't want to do them no matter what education they get at the University of Virginia. But they're perfectly well prepared to defend the state of Virginia against outside interference. And so it is that one part of Jefferson's division that succeeds at the expense of the other part, the reformist part.
2: Yeah, and I think you know that story of how this uh, institution once again takes a different route than jefferson would have thought and you know the education system as a whole takes a different route is you know really emblematic of his life and you know what we kind of associate with jefferson and so you know to end this you know we have You know, it's a great book. Once again, it's Thomas Jefferson's Education by Alan Taylor. And if you haven't picked up any of his other books, you know, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. So please do, if this is your first time uh, hearing about any of his works. But we have all of this. What might you be working on now?
1: Well, I'm doing a book which is a history of North America from approximately 1780 to 1850. So it's a history of the United States but it pays lots of attention to American relations with Canada, Mexico, Haiti, and with Native peoples. So it's the, the story of how the union created by the American Revolution is one that is um, under a great deal of strain as it expands. And uh, those strains then will be setting the stage for uh, the crisis in the Union that will come in the 1850s.
2: Well, I'm sure once that book comes out, we'll have you right back onto the program. But in the meantime, thank you very much for coming on today, Dr. Taylor.
1: Well, thank you for having me on. This has been a pleasure.